Well, as we uh, turn in our calendars and we move into this next season of the fall, we are going to start a new sermon series, and we're going to walk all the way from today to the beginning of, or just before Advent to Christ the King Sunday, and we're going to spend every week in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to take a journey through the book of Hebrews together. Now, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book. It's, I believe, the only book in the New Testament that is written anonymously. There's several books in the Old Testament that are written anonymously, but in the New Testament, it's sort of unique. And so we're not exactly sure who wrote it. We can't say that with exact certainty, but we do know who it was written to. And it was written to a group of Christians that were living in an urban setting, in a pluralistic setting, not too different from our own. In fact, the word uh, city is used in this book probably more than any other book, especially in the New Testament. And it's, a, it's an urban pluralistic con- context that this book is written to. And when this book was written, it was written to a group of Christians that to be a Christian in this context that the book was written, in this time, in this place, and amongst this people that it was written to, was actually quite challenging. To be a Christian, to hold to an orthodox faith of who Jesus was, was to experience oftentimes in this place some level of marginalization in the culture and in the society that they lived in. See, most people around them that the book was written to were probably towing the imperial line, and so they were probably pagans of some sort and just sort of wanted to fit in with the state religion. Others were, at least from the context of the people that they're writing to, were Jews, and they had a lot of religious power and specific power within unique communities during that time, both of whom had a lot more power than Christians, neither of whom liked Christians very much. And so there was a lot of hostility towards Christians, especially the Christians that were receiving this letter of the book of Hebrews, people of faith that, in, in Jesus that encountered a lot of these problems. And as they were living through life, there was this pressure that was building up in their lives to the extent that Christians in this time, we can deduce from the way that this letter is written, were asking some deeper and harder questions about life, life with God. So they were asking questions like, is this real? Is this real? Is, if it says that God is for us, who can be against us? It seems like there's a lot of people against us. And I don't know if I feel that God is walking with me every day. Is this real? Why are we suffering? Why are we experiencing challenges and marginalization? Why does life have to seem so hard? And as we get through the book, we can deduce from many of the things that he's saying that many people were maybe considering putting God on the shelf and sort of towing the imperial line and becoming pagans, or maybe some were thinking about going back into Judaism and saying, well, you know, life was easier and better, and they believed in a monotheistic God, so maybe we should just go ahead and walk with them again. So they were all asking the same question, why is life so hard? Why is this journey of faith fraught with many challenges and speed bumps. Why is it hard to live this vibrant faith for Jesus Christ? Now, I love all the books in the Bible. I love that this book is in the Bible because it speaks to us in these very same questions and challenges. Maybe you've asked these same questions. Is this all real? Is this all there is? Why am I experiencing challenges and suffering? If God is for me, why does it seem like so many people and so many things are against me? 
Or maybe you're in a place where you're just sort of walking along and you're saying, is this all there is? And maybe it's just more comfortable and easy to walk along with the culture and I can sort of put God on a shelf and and keep him at a safe distance and engage with him in a way that I want at certain times and sort of put him back on the shelf when I sort of want to live my own life and not have to deal with all the implications of what we see in the scriptures. Maybe you're asking those kind of questions. Maybe you're just in a place where you need hope. And you need a reminder of God's goodness in your life. Maybe you're here and you're just exploring faith for the first time or re-entering faith after a long pause. All of these experiences and questions are valid. God sees them. They are important. God's not afraid of any of these questions. In fact, he invites us to press in and lean into him at every stage of our journey, wherever we might be. This is where the book of Hebrews meets us. In many ways, it's a response to these experiences and these questions, to doubts and fears and challenges and all the difficulties of life. This book is meant to be an exhortation and encouragement and a loving response to all of these experiences that the people of Hebrews had, that they're being written to, and to probably the same things that we all have, are, or will experience in our lives at some point. So, I'm excited to look into this book together with you. And to use modern parlance, in many ways, the author of this book is coming in hot. Okay, only a certain age group got that, but just to show you that I'm cool, right? Okay. <laughs> he doesn't start with, uh, as in other books, he doesn't start with a lot of warm-up prose or long greetings. Those are good, too. But he just jumps straight into it. And he starts out with this big idea that God speaks to us. That God communicates to us and he speaks to us in every single one of our situations. That God speaks into history. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And it starts here with verse 1. It says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, as I just said, the author starts out by saying God speaks to us. He spoke to us through the prophets long time ago, and in these last days, and that means from the time of this writing until the end of time, in these last days, he speaks to us through Jesus Christ. And like many things in the scriptures, we can read this over real fast, just as an intro verse, and say, oh yes, of course God speaks to us in many ways. But I want to sit here and linger with this for a moment. God spoke to us and he speaks to us. The idea that God speaks to us, more than that, that God communicates and is communicating to us is quite amazing. It shows us that immediately that God cares. That God reaches out and makes contact to all of our lives and moves through all of history. That God spoke And he spoke through his son and is speaking to us through his son, which is more than just speaking words, it's actually showing himself. Shows us that God wants a relationship and he wants to be present with us with everything that's going on in our lives. He doesn't just leave us floating through life, trying to sort of, as the Apostle Paul says, grasp in the dark to try to find and make our path through all of the challenges of life. But he speaks and he's present and he communicates to us. Now, many of you know that I love languages. In fact, I even put that on the end of my resume for my first real job out of college. 
I love, I love languages. And my first job out of college was with this company that was very high pressure, and they sort of wanted to test people if they could handle pressure. And so that what they would do is they would hire, they would interview you in front of all the other interviewees. So they wouldn't have them wait in the other room, but they'd actually have all the other interviewees waiting in the room together with you, and they'd interview you in front of them. And my interviewer said at one point, oh, I see you like languages. I like languages too. Let's see how you really like languages. And she says, ¿Hablas español? And I said, sí, sí, hablo español. Tengo muchos amigos que hablan español. Vamos a hablar español. And he said, ah, oh, ¿fala portugués? Sí, yo falo portugués. Yo tengo un amigo de Brasil y São Paulo. He said, oh, ¿parlez-vous francés? Oui, je parle un peu de francés. Je me français très mal. J'ai habilité de communiquer dans le français. Then he said, ah, gavarite por uski. Да, у меня друзья в России. Я говорю по-русски, понимаю по-русски тоже. And uh, I think there was one other that he stumped me on. I think that was Mandarin or something. And he goes, okay, next question. And when I sat down, the other interviewer said, thanks a lot. And they called me a name. I won't say it as a, as a sermon, but they said, thanks a lot, uh, nice guy. Now, one of the things I love about languages, and one of the things that you begin to grasp as you Think about the concept of what language is. The con- is a language truly is just a, is a vessel for communicating ideas. It's a vessel for communicating something that's in my head and then communicating, making it common between you and me. So it's taking an idea, I put it in the vessel of language, I speak it to you, that language carries that idea to you, and now I communicate, I make that idea that I had common between you and me. So that's what the word speak and actually what the word communicate means. That's why we can communicate a disease. I can take a disease I have and make it common amongst us. I can communicate a disease, or you can even communicate a feeling. You can communicate a feeling without saying a single word. You can show that you're excited or angry simply by a posture. You can take a feeling that you have and make it common between you and me. Speaking and communicating, that's what it is. It's taking something and making it common among us. So when it says here that God speaks to us, that God spoke and he speaks to us, it's saying that he communicates with us. That through the prophets, God takes the truth about what is right and just, that is in the presence and knowledge and wisdom of God, and he makes that common amongst us by speaking it through the prophets. He takes his plan for redemption and hope that he has for the future, and he makes that common with his people by speaking it through his prophets. He takes the fact that he loves his people and he speaks that into the life of others and he makes that love common between himself and those that would believe in him and walk together with him. That's him communicating that? No, I'm kidding. So when he speaks, he communicates. And when it says in these last days, which means from the time of this writing to the end of time, he spoke through Jesus Christ and he's speaking through Jesus Christ, what it's saying is that through Jesus he communicates to us That he doesn't want us to be alone, but he is God together with us. He's taking his presence and making it common between us. The presence of God is available to us, the person of Jesus Christ and the movement of his Holy Spirit. God spoke through the prophets. He speaks to us through Jesus Christ. God chose to speak into our lives. Selah.
That alone to us can be a huge comfort that we are not alone, that all of these challenges and these questions that the people in this amazing book have felt and that we may feel or encounter, that we are not alone, that God communicates his presence and his truth to us. He makes his peace common to us as he speaks to us through his son and through his word. That alone, we could just end the sermon there, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Not only does God speak to us in terms of sharing his truth, but if we look verse in two and three, we see a couple more things that he does in the way that he speaks to us. So verse one, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God spoke to us through the prophets to share his truth. And now he is spoken, spoken, he has spoken to us and is speaking to us, communicating to us through his son. Now, if you'll bear with me here again for a moment. Like I said, the author's coming in hot. He's just coming straight off the bat and just going straight into it. Verse 3 is what, uh, verse 3 is going to take us into what commentators call nosebleed Christology. Meaning it tells us a lot about Jesus Christ. So we got to go to a baseball game uh, uh, two months ago. Well, we got to go to a baseball stadium two months ago, and then they canceled the baseball game. But we had the nosebleed seats, and we had to climb after stairwell, after stairwell, after stairwell, after stairwell, and then we thought we were there, and then we had eight more stairwells to go, and we finally got up to the top, and the girls loved the view, and we were in what's called the nosebleed section. So if you'll allow me, I want to take into the nosebleed section of a little bit of Christology, which is theology about who Jesus is. When it says that God spoke to us through his son, he communicated to us through his son, he mentions two things. First, he says that this son, which was God's communication to us, his speaking to us, is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, in the Hebrew Old Testament, way back in the Old Testament, when Moses led the people out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness, something appeared that led the people and is described in the Old Testament as a fiery cloud, fiery-ish cloud by day, fire, pillar of fire by night. And it's this pillar that, as Tim Keller would said, was so awesome and so powerful that when the Egyptian army who's pursuing the Israelites, when they see this pillar, that they stopped immediately in their tracks because it was just so awesome and amazing to behold. And later, this pillar of the fire, it leads the children of Israel through the wilderness. And then when they come to Mount Sinai, it comes to rest on Mount Sinai, and there's this weight of what the Old Testament calls this weight of glory that rests on the mountain to the degree that no one would dare to approach this mountain, and anyone that was near it would just fall down off of their feet. And then later, when the temple is dedicated, this cloud comes to rest in on the temple, and anyone that's near this temple on this cloud of weight and fire that would rest on this temple could not even stand on their feet. Now, what many commentators would say is that this cloud is God in a form that we can see. It's God expressing himself in a way that people can see and know in some fashion. And it's a form that expresses his brilliance, his beauty, his shattering importance. It's the weight of his glory. The Old Testament term is Shekinah, this weight of glory that is present in God. Stay with me. I know we're in the nosebleed section. Now, what does our author today say? 
about this. It says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That this weighty, shattering, beautiful, yet threatening glory that was present and led the people all through the Old Testament that demanded awe and respect and worship, all of that is found and resting in the person of Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, God takes this glory that he showed and he communicates it to us. He shows us his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, one that we quote here often, I'll just keep quoting it because I hope it gets embedded in your souls. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what Paul just said here is that God takes the glory of God that was untouchable and unapproachable, places it all in Jesus Christ, and as we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, that God actually communicates that to us, that we become transformed after the very nature of God, that God communicates his glory to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he communicates through Jesus. The second thing it says here in verse 3, we're going to come back down the stairs a little bit, not quite to the ground, but out from the nosebleed section. It says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And that Greek word there is character. That Jesus shows the character of God. That so when God is speaking through Jesus, he's not just giving us information, but he's actually showing us himself. He's revealing himself to us. Now, why would he do that? He does that for relationship. He does that to open up the opportunity that we would know him and to express what we would call divine hospitality, inviting us into this fullness of who God is so that we could know him and commune with him personally. So through Jesus, God isn't just communicating information, which he is. He's not just communicating this forensic reality of justice, which he is. He's not just communicating transcendent morals, which he is, all of which he does. He's not just communicating the concept of hope, which he does. I think you see where I'm going with this. He's communicating himself. He's taking himself and making it common among us that we would know God and be able to walk with him. Not only is God speaking God's, Jesus speaking God's word, but he is God's word. Not only is Jesus speaking God's truth, but he is God's truth. So for us, all the mess, all the pain, all the questions, God didn't just speak to us in words, but he communicated himself to us. Nelson Mandela once famously said this, if you talk to a person in a language that they understand, that goes to their head. But if you talk to them in their own language, their mother language, and that goes to their heart. So in Jesus Christ, God spoke to us, not only in a language that we could know in our minds, but in a language that we could understand and receive because he communicated himself to us. He gave us himself as the word. This is what God did for us. And this is how the Hebrews author starts out. He says, so you're going through these challenges. You have these questions. They're valid and important and they're hard. 
This is what God did for you is he spoke into your life and he didn't just give you information with how to deal with it, but he sent you his actual self through the person of Jesus Christ. Whew. Okay, now to come all the way back down from the nosebleed section and come into our regular lives. Hebrews 2. The rest of Hebrews 1 sort of builds up on what he said. He, he builds up on these points I just made from the Old Testament. He makes quotes. And then he goes into chapter 2, and this is where he holds us to this implication of what we just explored. That's a lot of high Christology and ideas about God, but what does it mean for us? At least, what does this author want this to mean for us? How does he want us to respond as we exit the nosebleed section and we walk back into our normal lives? What he says here is that given all of this reality, this idea that the glory of God is resting on Jesus Christ that when we know him, he's communicating himself to us. It's something that we have to respond to with all of our lives. That Jesus and this idea of what God did for us isn't something that we can just leave on the shelf. That's why he says here, therefore, why is it there? Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, ask, what's it there for? <laughs> therefore, sorry, old pastorism. Therefore, we must pay closer attention. And the Greek there is, we must obsess ourselves. We must focus our energy on this. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now remember, the, the folks in Hebrews were asking the question, is this real? Is God with us? Should I maybe go back to being a Jew? Should I maybe turn to these pagans? They seem to have an easier life. What should I do? Should I put this God on the shelf with these other solutions that are present? And what he says is, obsess over this truth that God's glory is present in Jesus Christ, that he speaks into your life, and do not drift away. Pay attention to what he's saying. Consider everything that we've heard, that God, the creator of all things, spoke to us and is speaking to us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus, who's the radiance of the glory of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, can't be left on the shelf with a host of other solutions for a better life. Pay closer attention, obsess over it. Even if other pathways seem more expedient, even if other pathways alleviate some immediate challenges in our lives, even if other things seem more exciting on face value, do not drift away. This is the encouragement of this author. If God's really speaking to us, if God is really communicating to us in this way, then that pushes us to either make it a full acceptance or full rejection. And I love how N.T. Wright put it here, and I'm coming close to the end here. I love how N.T. Wright, he put it in a more eloquent way than I ever could. He asked the question, how can you live with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst, Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful placating. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of these, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Now what this book calls us to, again, Thank you for being here. We're glad we're starting the book of Hebrews. He definitely came in hot today. 
what this book calls us to, and really what the, all the scriptures call us to, is out of a life of what N.T. Wright described, the shallow world in between. Out of a life where we have lots of solutions on the shelf and we sort of take the God solution down when we want it, put it back up there when we don't want it. Out of a life of hedging and into a life of fully accepting this goodness of God that's present to us in what he communicates to us through Jesus Christ. To embrace this reality that God in Jesus communicated his truth, his love, his presence, his glory, and ultimately invites us to know him and to walk together with him. So I want to invite us as we come to take communion, as we walk in our lives together of faith and we worship and praise the Lord together, as we embrace and develop our lives together as Christ the King with all the questions and with all the challenges, with all this long obedience that God calls us to in the same direction, let us play close attention. Let us not drift. Let us cling to this glory that is present in Jesus Christ is made known to us here and now. Let's offer our lives together to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do pray that you would be here together with us, that these words, Lord, as you mentioned, would not just be in our heads, but that you would plant them deeply in our hearts, that we would know your presence that surpasses and transcends all of our explanations that we would know your goodness that you made known in your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, and give us, by your Holy Spirit, the ability to respond, to not drift, or to walk together with you in all that we do. But I pray especially for those in this room today that are heavy, heavy laden with the challenges of life, that those just seem very prescient right now. God, we ask that you would speak specifically to them by the Holy Spirit, that you would visit them now that you would make these words true and real in their lives. Anchor us all, Lord, together in this truth. We pray all of this in your great and holy name.